If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we are deviating from our Genesis study. Um, We'll return there in months to come. Tommy will be preaching in January, Lord willing, and resume our Luke study. But we're deviating from our Genesis study to consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the incarnation in simple terms is God becoming man. The invisible God becoming visible. The immortal God taking on mortal flesh. And Lord willing, we will consider the incarnation this week and next. Next week, we'll turn to John 1 and we'll look at the word of God who became flesh to make God known to man. And now this week, we'll consider how the Son of God took on human flesh that he might die a sinner's death. So I've titled the sermon, Born to Die. And we'll focus on two primary questions. First question, how could the Son of God die? How can God die? Talk about why that really is a paradoxical question. And then the second question is why? Why did the Son of God die? So before we get into this sermon, let's go ahead and read our passage. We're going to read Hebrews 2, 5 through 17, and we'll answer those questions from this text. But I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray. So Hebrews 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. And we marvel at the revelation of the Son. We're amazed that you draw us to yourself by the Holy Spirit. And we're grateful that we can now come to you as our Father, as your children who have been given to Christ. Now through Christ, by your Spirit, we come to you and we offer up our praises. We worship you, O God. And we also come and we offer up our petitions to you. And so this morning, I pray for George as he preaches at Galveston County Church. I pray that you would be glorified through his preaching. I pray that you would bless Galveston County Church through your word. I also pray for Taylor Worley. I pray that these weeks off for him will be refreshing for him and his family. Sustain him in his ministry, O oh God. Bring men to him who will be able to serve alongside him as elders, as teachers. Be with Kelsey and the kids. And bring salvation to their home. I pray the same for our homes. Bring salvation to our homes and draw our children to yourself, O God. I pray that you would be pleased this very day to draw many to yourself through the preaching of your word. I pray that the word would be preached here and and across the nation and around the world. Thank you for our brother Joe who is here with us today. that, that, That Thank you for his ministry. I pray that you would work through him to strengthen your church, your bride. Sustain him and his family. Sustain us. Help us to remain faithful. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us not to become enamored with the things of this world, but to be enamored by that which is truly enamoring, that which is truly great and marvelous, which is you, O God. And you've shown us that. You've given us a taste of that as you've revealed yourself through the Son, by the Spirit opening our eyes to the truth and the reality of the Son. So I pray that you would be glorified among us this very day. I pray that the Spirit would open our eyes, the Son would be exalted, and that we would see your truth more clearly, and that our hearts would be stirred up to praise, our hearts would be stirred up to love and good works. Be with us and help us this day. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So the significance of Jesus Christ cannot be ignored. It cannot even be denied. If you think about Jesus Christ, who he is, think about his significance. Even people who try to, to deny him cannot deny his significance. 
A global movement began because of him and his birth effectively divided history in two. And because of his significance, Christians have devoted much time and effort to understand his being, to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is especially true of those who lived in the first few centuries after the apostles. They devoted much time to prayerfully search the scriptures that they might know Jesus Christ as he's been revealed to us. And while Christians search the scriptures to know the person of Christ, errant views began to arise. Beliefs that were contrary to scripture began to pop up. Some believe that, God, that Jesus was God, but he was not truly human. This is known as docetism, which is the idea that Jesus only appeared to be a man. Others swung the pendulum the other way and believed that Jesus was simply a man. This is the Ebionite heresy. They viewed Jesus as a righteous man, anointed by God, but not as God in the flesh. And then there were others who took kind of a middle ground, a middle approach, they, that, that Jesus took on a new nature entirely. They believed that the divine and the human natures assimilated in Jesus Christ, creating something new that was neither divine nor human. This is the Eutychian heresy. I've provided all of these terms in your worship guide. Um, I've called it sermon glossary, just so you can have those things. You don't have to uh, memorize all of these things. There will be a test later, um, but... But, but these claims, some, some believe that Jesus just appeared to be man. Some believe that he was not God. Others believed he was something new entirely. And due to these heretical claims, several councils were, were held to discuss the person of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the scriptures. The Council of Nicaea considered the relationship between the Son of God and the Father. The Council of Chalcedon considered the two natures of Christ. And while these councils, they denied, they condemned these heretical views, it doesn't take long for us to recognize, especially if we think about these things, we study these things, it doesn't take long for us to recognize the difficulty of the subject matter at hand. If Jesus is God, how could God die? God's immortal, therefore he's unable to die. God's impassable, therefore he cannot suffer. If Jesus is man, how can he perform miracles? Yes, I know. Others, others performed miracles before him. I mean, you think of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. But each man was a prophet of God. The power of God rested on them. But Jesus, with him, he claimed to be God. Yet the power of God rested in him. The power of the holy God would not reside within a blasphemous man. So how can this man who claimed to be the great I am perform miracles? And how can this man claim to forgive sins and then perform miracles? So it's questions such as these that have been considered throughout the ages, especially during the early centuries of the church. And it's questions such as these that led to the articulation of the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, creedal statements that are still relevant today because they express and summarize the truths of Scripture. And while these great creedal statements from Nicaea and Chalcedon have, have been given to us, have been passed down to us today, 
Too often, we assume the doctrine of the incarnation. Today, many of us take this doctrine for granted. And because we often assume the doctrine of the incarnation, it doesn't take long for us to lose the wonder and the awe that God became man. It doesn't take us long to lose the wonder of Christ. Our indifference to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, often, often re, it results in an apathetic approach to worship. When we become familiar with doctrines that we have not labored to understand, instead of marveling, we become calloused. And as a result, we fall prey to new inventions, new forms of worship, to new interpretations of God that are nothing more than the invention of our imaginations. We fall prey to new renditions, new perspectives. I mean, you think about it. If you look at all the tellings of the Jesus narrative today, think about it all over, whether in church, whether in Hollywood, all over, you will find that people have become tired of the biblical witness. They're telling it in new ways from new perspectives and telling new things because they've grown, grown bored or tired because they have not really sought to search the inexhaustible riches of God revealed to us through the scriptures. When we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, we will never, we could spend all of our lives seeking to understand this reality and we will never get it fully. We will never fully understand the mystery of the God-man. Do not grow tired of, of, of meditating, contemplating upon Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. So what my, my intent is over the next couple of weeks is to remind you of the wonder of the incarnation. It's my intent to remind you of the mystery of the God-man who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and by the Virgin Mary and was made man. And to remind you of the wonder of the incarnation, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter two, where we'll see the necessity of the incarnation. At points during the sermon, I'll be quoting men from the fourth century that may be unfamiliar to some of you. So I'm gonna go ahead and introduce these men up front. Like I say, these are in the, the glossary in your uh, worship guide, but one man I'll be quoting from is Athanasius. He was an ardent opponent of Arianism. Um, Arianism was simply put a denial of the full divinity of Christ. Athanasius wrote a book titled On the Incarnation. Um, it's extremely helpful. I would say it's an extremely devotional book. I've given you an excerpt from that book in your worship guide. You can determine if that is for you. Um, the other man is Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, his theological treatises on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit um, are still being assigned to seminary students today. And along with Athanasius, Gregory was, um, he played a significant role in the Trinitarian debates of the fourth century. So those are a couple guys, you'll hear me quote their names. That just gives you a little snippet of who they are. 
So with all that in mind, let's turn our attention to the book of Hebrews, but we're gonna get to chapter two, but in order for us to understand the incarnation, to understand the questions we're going to ask to answer those, we have to begin in chapter one. So we have to see here in in Hebrews chapter one, I'm not gonna read through this, I'm just gonna point out some things for you. You can go back and read these things later, but in the first four verses of Hebrews one, we see some extremely profound statements made about the Son. Here's a few. The Son is the decisive word of God. So long ago, at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son. The Son is the decisive word of God. We also learn here that through the Son, God created the world. We also learn that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. We also learn that the Son upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. And we learn that the Son is seated at the right hand of God. These are some profound statements made about the Son of God. So the the Son is one who is high, lifted up, creator. All things are created through him. He is the decisive word of God, the radiance of the glory of God, upholding the universe by the word of his power, seated at the right hand of God. And these statements that we see here cannot be said about man or about the angels. For as we see in verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So one question we would ask if we were walking through Hebrews 1, one question we would ask up front is, the son, is he a created being who has been exalted? Or, as the text tells us, because we don't have to wait long to answer that question, we find that he is God. So verses 5 through 13 of chapter 1 have a string of Old Testament quotes. These Old Testament quotes, References show us that the Son is not only superior to the angels, but that He's distinct from them. In verse 5, it begins, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And the implied answer is that God did not say any of these things about the angels. He said these things about the Son. And while each reference here demands exposition, explanation, I want to draw your attention to one statement in verse 8. In verse 8, we read, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This comes from Psalm 45. And I want you to notice that God does not say this about the angels. He says this about the Son. And what does he say about the Son? He's saying that the Son is God. I mean, look, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Here we learn something very profound about the Son. The Son is the eternal God. Your throne, O God. That's why God's angels are commanded to worship him, as we see in verse 6. The angels are commanded to worship the Son, because the Son is God. Now you'll see here that it says when he brings the firstborn into the world, so the Son is referred to as the firstborn, but this is not to be confused with him being created. This is his status. 
This is his supremacy, his honor next to his father. The son is by no means created because the son is God and no one becomes God. God is God. So the son is of God, meaning he is of the essence of God. And as we learn from passages like this and from John 1, the son is only called the son because he's begotten of the father. He's begotten of the unbegotten father. He was not begotten in time. He was eternally begotten. There was never a time when he was not. So there was never a time when the father was not the father. And there was never a time when the son was not the son. So Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, he said this, before Abraham was, I am. The son of God is the great I am. He simply is is. He is the true God. Therefore, eternal life dwells in him. That's why he can give life, because life dwells in him. Eternal life dwells in him. That is why he can gift eternal life. Eternal life is found in no other source but God. And Christ, being God, the Son, being God, is the giver of eternal life. And because eternal life dwells in him, it's his nature to be. The Son is the immortal God. If we were to turn over to 1 Timothy 6, we would see that He alone has immortality. The Son has immortality. To God alone belongs immortality. The Son is God, so to Him alone belongs immortality. To be immortal is to be imperishable. And that which is imperishable cannot die. I know that you have imperishable goods in your house. They go bad eventually. But to be imperishable, when we're talking about that in terms of God, to be imperishable, he cannot die. So when the Father says of the Son, your throne, o, well, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, we're clued into the reality that the Son of God is God himself. And because he's God, he's immortal. And that which is immortal cannot but as we'll see in Hebrews chapter two, the son of God dies. And since he is God, we have to ask the question, how can God die? God's immortal. That which is immortal does not die. But as we read in Hebrews two, verse nine, Jesus, who is the son of God, he tastes death. On the cross, the son of God truly tasted death. It didn't just appear like he died. The Son of God died on the cross. So how can the immortal God die? It's impossible for him to die. So how can he die? Well, Hebrews 2 gives us the answer to that question. In verses 5 through 9, the Hebrew author takes us, the Hebrews author takes us to Psalm 8. And so he takes this psalm and then he applies it to the Son of God. This is a resumption of that Old Testament string of quotes. Remember that in chapter one was showing us that the Son is superior to and distinct from the angels. So now we pick back up on that line of reasoning. And here in verse five, we see that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he quotes from Psalm eight, which Craig read earlier. 
Psalm 8 refers to the majesty of God. It also refers to the insignificance of man. Who is man? What is man? You're mindful of man, why? Who's the son of man that you would care for him? Why, who are we? So we have the majesty of God, the insignificance of man coupled with the amazing privilege that's been given to man as God's image bearer. And just look at verse seven. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. So while man has been made lower than the angels, we see that God has crowned him with glory and honor. This is not because man deserved this. That's why I said insignificance. It's not that man came in with something. Man was brought in, given grace and given gifts from the very beginning. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So man has been created lower than the angels, Yet man has been created in God's image and has been given dominion over all the earth. And while this is a clear reference to man in Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews takes this reference and applies it to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We'll stop there because we'll see the rest in a sec. So Jesus, the son of God, and here we read that he's been made lower than the angels. In chapter one, what did we learn about Jesus? He is superior to the angels. He's greater than the angels. He's worshiped by the angels because he is God. Yet now we see that the son has been made lower than the angels. Well, how is that possible? How can the son of God, God, how can the Son, who is God, who is rightly worshiped by the angels, how can he be made lower than the angels? You know the answer, by becoming man. If not for the incarnation, Psalm 8 does not apply to the Son. Psalm 8 does not apply to Jesus Christ if not, for the, if not for Jesus Christ, if not for him becoming man. The son would, this would not apply to the son if not for the, the, the incarnation. Psalm 8 only applies to one who is made of flesh and blood. And we see in verse 14 that he himself likewise partook of the same things, namely flesh and blood. And in 17, he was made like his brothers in every respect. He partook of flesh and blood. He's been made like his brothers in every respect. That's why Psalm 8 applies to the Son. The Son of God did not merely look like a man. The Son of God became man. Why did he become man? He became man that he might die. Verse 9. We see that he was made lower than the angels, that he might taste death for everyone. And down in verse 14, we see he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So circling back to our question, how could God die. Well, in the words of Athanasius, being immortal and the son of the father, 
he was not able to die. For this reason, he takes to himself a body that is capable of death. So the immortal one could not die. So he assumed human flesh that he might die. The infinite God in whom there is no beginning or end assumed finite flesh And as Gregory of Nazianz has said, he was actually subject as a slave to flesh, to birth, and to our human experiences. By taking up a body that is capable of death, he subjected himself to our lowly estate. And as Gregory goes on to say, for all our sakes, he became all that we are, sin apart. Body, soul, mind, and all that death Gregory correctly notes that while he assumed our human nature, everything exactly like us, he was not corrupted by our human nature. He was not corrupted. In Hebrews 4.15, we read that he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Son of God was not corrupted by our corruption because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. As Gregory notes, in heaven he has no mother, and on earth he has no father. Therefore, sin was not generated to him. So while he became like us in every way, he was born without sin. Our corrupt nature did not become his, and that right there ought to cause us to marvel. To consider a man without sin. You can't look around and find one. But to think that there was a couple thousand years ago a baby born in a manger without sin. And as you contemplate that, I mean, just imagine moms in here, imagine being the the mother of that child, a sinless child. That's Jesus. That's the son. Without sin, but just like us, tired thirsty, hungry, no sin, never complaining, never grumbling, not doing the things you and I do, not excusing ourselves, saying, you know what, I just was tired, that's why I I, I yelled at you, never does any of that because that's not in him. You can't fathom that because you can't see that, but that's Jesus He became like us in every way, yet without sin. Our corrupt nature did not become his. Athanasius illustrates this with the sun. The sun is not polluted by touching bodies upon the earth, nor is it destroyed by darkness. I mean, you think about that. The darkness doesn't destroy the sun. The sun pervades through. So rather, the sun enlightens and purifies. So much more the all-holy word of God, the maker of the sun, when being made known in the body was not polluted, but rather being incorruptible, he vivified and purified even the mortal body, for he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. I mean, that's incredible. The immortal God takes on mortal flesh, yet he was not corrupted by it. And to take this a step further, when he becomes man, He does not lose anything that already belonged to him. As Gregory says about his birth, he remained what he was, what he was not, he assumed. The Son of God does not discard anything 
when he assumes human flesh. He does not lose anything pertaining to his divine nature when he takes a human nature to himself. He truly is the God-man. He is God and man. He's not a hybrid of sorts. He is true God and true man. He was born, yet he is before all things. He created all things. He hungered, yet we see that he's the one who feeds thousands miraculously. He learned obedience, yet as his disciples correctly note, they said, you know all things. And the same person, he is God and he is man. In the one Christ, he is the invisible God made visible. In the one person of Christ, he is the infinite God made finite. In the one person of Christ, he is the immortal God made mortal. And while he becomes what we are, he does not lose what was already his. While he's mortal in his humanity, he's immortal in his divinity. Finite in his humanity, infinite in his divinity. Visible in his humanity, invisible in his divinity. Two natures. God and man united in one Christ. Two natures, they they remain distinct, yet inseparable. And so the more we consider the incarnation, the more wonderful it ought to become. When we think about the creator of the world being born, the one who is before all things, being born as a baby in a manger, When we think about that, that ought to blow the roof off of our finite minds. And it ought to lead us to worship. And it should lead us to bow down before him. So coming back to our question, how could God die? By becoming man. The immortal could not die. And just to note, when he dies on the cross, it's not God that dies. I mean, that should blow your mind too. The son of God dies on the cross, but God does not die. Yet the man truly tastes death. The immortal could not die, so he puts on mortal flesh. But why? Why did the son of God die? That's the second question. And the answer is found right here in Hebrews 2. If you look at the end of verse nine, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just looking at John Owen's commentary on Hebrews, and he says, the cause of Christ's death is the grace of God. And the purpose of Christ's death was for others. Just look at the end of verse nine, the purpose that he might taste death for everyone. Who's the everyone? Is this teaching that Christ died for everyone in general? Is this teaching a form of universalism? Well, let's look. Let's look at the text, see what it says, because we see that Christ, he might die for everyone. Well, in verse 11, I'm not gonna, if you wanna talk about this more, we can talk later. But in verse 11, we see at the end of this verse, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Those whom Christ died for, the one that he became man that he might die for, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers, when Jesus was told, your mother, your brother, your sisters, they're looking for you. You remember his response? 
whoever does the will of God. That is my mother, brother, and sister. So first of all, we can say that everyone for whom Christ died would include his brothers and his sisters. And I think when you import and put, look at the gospels in light of that, we would say his brothers are those who do his will. And then down in verse 13, we see that these are those, I mean, look at the end of verse 13, the quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. It's the children God has given to Christ. The ones he died for were given to him by the Father. And as we read Jesus saying in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So this can't be everyone universally. For this refers to those who were given to Christ by the Father. And as we consider passages like John 6, we're reminded that everyone who is given to Christ will come to him. But that's not all we see here because in verse 16, we see it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's not the offspring of Adam. Yes, everyone who belongs to the offspring of Abraham comes from the offspring of Adam. But the offspring of Abraham refers to a particular people. The offspring of Adam refers to the whole world. The offspring of Abraham refers to a particular people. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Those who have faith. Remember, God promised Abraham, you'll be the father of a multitude of nations. And it's those who come to Christ from all the nations. It's those who come to Christ through faith that belong to Abraham's offspring. Romans 4, Galatians 3. So coming back to verse nine, we can say that when we read here that he tasted death for everyone, it means everyone who belongs to him. He tasted death for his people. And why did he taste death for his people? All of them, every one of them. First reason is to bring many sons to glory. So why did he taste death? First reason to bring many sons to glory. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, or should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Son of God, he's the founder of our salvation. He was made perfect through suffering. God, who is already perfect, was made perfect through suffering. As God, he was already perfect. As man, he was made the perfect savior of sinners through the pangs of death. Why? So that he might bring many sons to glory. The suffering here, he's made perfect through suffering. The suffering is the suffering of death, as we see in verse nine. He suffers death that he might bring many sons to glory. He's perfected. He's the perfect savior, the perfect mediator between God and man that he might bring us into eternal glory. John Piper notes, he is our forerunner 
He becomes a human being. He suffers and he dies in our place. He rises from the dead victorious and he enters into glory. Why? So that he might lead many sons to glory. This glory that Jesus leads us into is the glory that we forfeited in Adam. This glory that Jesus leads us into is the eternal glory that fills the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. It fills them with light. Therefore, the sun, the moon are irrelevant because his glory shines so brightly. This glory that Jesus leads us into is the eternal glory of the all-satisfying God in whom there is eternal delight and eternal joy. So the Son of God dies to bring many sons to glory. And we'll consider that further, that glory next week. Furthermore, the Son of God dies to sanctify his people. In verse 11, we read, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not, a call, not ashamed to call them brothers. So the he, he was a, who is the he who sanctifies? It's the Son. It's the Son of God who sanctifies. And, and just a, an aside here, this is pretty remarkable when we think about the Son of God is the one who sanctifies. For as we learn from the book of Leviticus, if you were to go there, read Leviticus 20, 21, 22, you would see that it is God who sanctifies. God's the one who sanctifies. Yet here we read, it's Jesus who sanctifies. Why can we read that and that be true? Because in his divine nature, remember he is God. And as God, Jesus is the one who sanctifies his brothers and his sisters. But to sanctify his people, what did he have to do? He had to die. As we learn from Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, he gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. Jesus sanctifies his people through his shed blood, which cleanses us from our sin and makes us white as snow. And he sanctifies us because we must be sanctified in order to be brought into glory. We are sinners whose sins are like scarlet. Yet he sanctifies us and makes us presentable before the Father in heaven. And as we see here in verse 11, because we have one source, most likely a reference to the Father, because we have one source and because he sanctifies us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We've been adopted into the family of God. And Jesus is now our eldest brother. And because he is our brother sharing in our likeness, he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. That's why we look to Christ and to none other. He's God, he's man. Therefore, he is able to help us in our weakness. He knows your every weakness. You don't need to go and find someone who knows your weakness. Christ knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows you better than you do. That's why we run to him. <clears throat> so not only does he die to bring many sons to glory and to sanctify his people, but as we see in verse 14, he died to destroy the devil. As we see here, he takes on our flesh and blood that he might die. He was born to die, but why? Second half of the verse, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I mean, notice how the devil is described here. He's described as the one who has the power of death. It's an interesting statement. It almost seems like the devil is sovereign over death. Is there something that is outside of God's sovereign control? Death, is that in the devil, in, in, the, in the domain of the devil and not in God's domain? Well, if we went to Revelation, we would learn that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. God is sovereign even over death. That is why Jesus will ultimately defeat death. That's the last enemy to be defeated. So the devil's power over death, although real, is limited at best. As one commentator notes, death is held by the devil in a secondary, not an ultimate sense. As such, I take this to refer to the devil's deceptive power. In John 8, 48, uh, John 8 44, Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer from the beginning. Did the devil physically murder Adam and Eve? No, he didn't physically murder them. However, he deceived our first parents to eat of the forbidden fruit, which led to what? Certain death. And now that we're all born of Adam and Eve, we're born into the devil's domain. In scripture, he is referred to as the God and the ruler of this world. But as we see here in Hebrews 2.14, the one who could not die, the son, God, partook of flesh and blood, and now through death, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. As John Owen states, all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation were removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. Owen then goes on to quote Romans 8.1. Beautiful verse. There is now Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those in Christ. And then he says, this is because of Christ's death. He died for their sins and took on himself the death that they deserved. Once death was conquered and their obligation to death was taken away, Satan's power was dissolved. So through death, The Son of God defeated the one who has the power of death. And now we no longer live under the dominion of the devil. That's further expounded upon in verse 15, where we see another reason why the Son of God died, which is to set the captives free. In verse 15, we read, Through his death, he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death. Slavery. As seen here, the Son of God took on human flesh that he might die to liberate the captives, to deliver those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Man was created to be a recipient of God's blessing. But when man sinned, when we sinned, when Adam sinned, we're placed under the curse. So the Son of God became man that he might become a curse in our place and thereby to establish a new and better covenant. 
He became a curse in our place. This, when we think about Jesus Christ becoming a curse, to die on that tree, cursed in your place, the screams of love. And if it doesn't, then you don't know what love is. The Son of God was born in the fullness of time, that he might live a righteous life, that he might offer himself up on the cross so that we might be freed from the curse of the law. In the words of Gregory of Nazianzus, the one who releases me from the curse was called a curse for me. And now by his death, we're released from the curse. We're released from the legal demands that stood against us under the broken covenant of works that we're all born into. But by his death, we're released from that broken covenant of works. And death no longer has dominion over us. We've been liberated from our master, the devil, the one who has the power of death. The son of God was born to die so that the fear of death might no longer reign over his people. He liberates us from the power of the devil, from the bondage of sin, and from the fear of death. Through his death, through his burial and resurrection, death no longer has its sting. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We no longer need to fear death. That's why we don't fear man. What can man do to us? Man can only kill the body but we are in God's hands and nothing can separate us from him. Not even physical death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So while he sets the captives free through his death, we also see in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, that he dies to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Just look at this verse. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We've already talked about that. Everything like us except sin. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. So he becomes like us in every way that he might go before the father and offer himself on our behalf, to satisfy the wrath of God that stands against us. That's what it means to be a propitiation. He satisfied the wrath that abides over us. And he's the only one that could do this. No one else could make propitiation for the sins of man. Since man sinned, only man can pay for his sin. As Athanasius said, nothing in all creation had gone astray in its notions of God, save the human being only. See, it was man who sinned. Therefore, it is man who must pay for his sin. However, man is unable to bear the penalty for sin. Because the penalty for our sin is the wrath of the infinite God. So while man must pay, man cannot pay because man is a finite human being who's fallen, who's a sinner. But God in his infinite wisdom put forth his son in whom the very essence of deity dwells. 
God puts forth himself as the payment for man's sin. But in order for God to save man, he must become like the man he intends to save. But he couldn't be born of man and woman because then he would be born in our fallen nature. So he does something that man and angel, neither one can do. He becomes incarnate. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, thus taking upon himself man's frailty without being tainted by our sin. He had to be man without sin, otherwise he could not pay the price for man's sin. But he also has to be God because finite man cannot endure the infinite wrath of God. And because the Son of God takes upon himself our nature, he died the death we deserved. God now looks upon us with favor because all our sins have been pardoned. In the words of Wilhelmus Abrackle, then all the sins of all believers, however great and numerous they may be, are completely paid for. No slightest guilt or penalty remains. So completely is everything satisfied as if they had committed no sins, but had perfectly kept the law. For he who is satisfied is the true and eternal God. All of it. The Son of God died that all our sins paid for. And his life becomes ours, his righteousness becomes ours as if we kept the law perfectly. So the Son of God satisfied the legal demands that stood against us. He died a sinner's death in our place and in this way. Last reason here why God died. In this way, God vindicates his infinite worth. The Son of God dies to vindicate the worth of His infinite glory. God's design to vindicate His worth and to give hope for sinners who've brought contempt upon His glory is the death of His Son. God created man in His image. And as God's image bears, our purpose was to reflect God, to bring Him glory upon the earth. Yet we've all fallen short of that glory because we try to glorify ourselves instead of our creator. And now through the death of his son, God vindicates his name by showing just how heinous sin is and how worthy he is. We've attempted to rob God of his honor. We've attempted to rob him of his honor. So to redeem fallen man, it was the son of God who had to die to forgive our sins and to vindicate God's honor. Anselm, he's an 11th century theologian. He said this, when someone repays what he has illegally stolen, his obligation to give is not to be equated with what might be asked of him if he had stole nothing. Everyone who sins has an obligation to repay to God the honor he has seized from him. If you ever had anything stolen from you, you get it back, was justice paid? Was your honor vindicated? No, you didn't, because that's why there's penalty. That's why there's punishment. And so we think about this. Think about how 
our sin and our transgression. It's against God. It's against the holy God. And so therefore the price that's required to pay, not only to pay back the crimes we've committed, but to restore the honor of the one against whom we've sinned, that price must be so great. And because the one from whom we've robbed has infinite worth, that price must be of infinite worth and infinite value. You and I are finite. Finite worth, finite value. The price must be infinite worth, infinite value. That's why the payment, so think about it, because for God to be vindicated, that's why the payment, it must be so great. And who could offer a sacrifice so fitting to pay back that which was stolen and to vindicate the honor and dignity of the one from whom it was stolen? Who could do that but the Son of God? Only the death of the Son of God could vindicate the honor that we sought to strip away from God. This is why it could only be the God-man. The only sufficient price was the spotless, sinless, eternal Son of God who became man. So returning to our two primary questions. How could God die? By becoming man. And why did God die? to bring many sons to glory, to sanctify his people, to destroy the one who has the power of death, to liberate the captives, to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of the elect and to vindicate God's honor. You see, God was under no obligation to save sinners. He wasn't obligated to do this. That's why it's all of grace. We go back to the beginning that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was all of grace. But because he decreed to save sinners, the incarnation is absolutely necessary. In the words of Augustine, there was no way more appropriate for curing our misery. Only God could do this and only man ought to do this. Hope you see the incarnation is absolutely necessary because God decreed to redeem sinners. If you take away the incarnation, then you strip away the very essence of the Christian faith. If you take away the incarnation, Christianity is like every other religion, a futile attempt to work our way to God. Christianity would be like every other religion. All we would be doing would be trying to keep the law We'd be trying to work our way to God through law-keeping. Why? Well, the law makes demands. The law is written on our heart, and the law makes demands. It's what you owe to God. That's the law. And it's everybody, not just those who have read the Bible. This is everybody. The law makes demands. But you know who fulfilled those demands? The God-man. Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. So while the law makes demands, the gospel demands nothing. The gospel, it's the message that Jesus came to fulfill the righteousness that we need. He fulfills all righteousness. 
And now his righteousness is freely given. That's why the gospel is good news. The law demands perfect obedience. The gospel is the message that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Now through faith, his work is credited to you. The gospel is the message that he died to establish a new and better covenant. And the works of this covenant have all been fulfilled by him. And by his righteousness, this is marvelous. By his righteousness, we are made worthy participants of the new covenant because of him. Because his righteous works have been credited to our account, we are now worthy partakers of the new covenant. His works are credited to us, not because of anything we've done. Don't ever forget that. That's why you start to think so highly of yourself because you forget that. But his works are credited to you, not because of anything you have done and not because of anything that you will do. His works are credited by faith alone. Faith in its principal parts, as described in our confession as accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. This is the gospel message. It demands nothing because Christ fulfilled all the demands of the law. Jesus Christ fulfills the demands of the law and he offered himself in our place to make propitiation for our sin. Born in the fullness of time, to live a righteous life, to die a criminal's death. And now he calls all sinners unto himself. Love the picture that Athanasius paints. He writes that only upon the cross does one die with hands stretched out. Think about it. On the cross, only on a cross are you dying with your hands stretched out. He says it was fitting for the Lord to endure this and to stretch out his hands that with the one he might draw the Jew and with the other those from the Gentiles and join both together in himself. This he himself said when he indicated by what manner of death he was going to redeem all. When I am lifted up, I shall draw all to myself. Salvation is yours through faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, I call everyone here to fall into the arms of the Savior. His arms are wide open. He will not cast you out. He will not say, you know what, you've done too much. You did this or did that. He fulfilled it all. There's not one sin that he did not die for his elect. He died for them all. And so he invites sinners now to come to him and to find rest for your heavy laden, burdened soul. The eternal God, the eternal son of God. He's the perfect savior for sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would continue to show us the beauty of the incarnation, the grace, the glory that is to be seen through Christ by your Spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes that to remind us 
that our sin is so great, but our Savior is so much greater. Oh, I pray that we would sing your infinite praises and that we would go out and call all men and women to yourself. We have the gospel of hope. And I pray that we would not keep that to ourselves. I pray that our lives would be so changed by the gospel that we would share the good news with one another. We would share the good news in our homes and that that good news would permeate all of us and all of life and that we would live all of life unto your glory and that we might know you and that we might enjoy you forever. Help us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.